Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. The entire industry generally has to try to abstract all of that complexity and regulation away from the end user and the companies that do that the best, you know, that's one of their main value propositions. I think it's key to our operations because the opposite of it is you leave that complexity to a few subject matter experts in the organization and they become the bottleneck for everything. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast, brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Kenny Shin, CTO at Fundrise, joins us to discuss Fundrise's journey and some of the distinctions in building and operating in a highly regulated environment like fintech. We also get into some of the specialization dilemmas in an early stage engineering organization, how regulatory environments impact the engineering team's development process, how at Fundrise, they're reapplying their technology across new sectors with Fundrise's new innovation fund. And we also get into some of the unexpected impact their innovation fund is having on their engineering org. Let me introduce you to Kenny. Kenny Shin has been CTO at Fundrise since the company's very beginning in March 2012. Fundrise launched America's first online real estate investment platform and has become the largest direct-to-investor alternatives investment manager. They have more than 1.6 million active users, more than $3.3 billion worth of equity under management, and $7 billion worth of real estate transacted. Fundrise offers investors exposure to some of the most prized asset classes in the world. Prior to Fundrise, Kenny's consulted for Fortune 500 clients in financial services and technology, including Fannie Mae, Oracle, Lockheed Martin, and Computer Science Corporation. Kenny's also consulted for government clients, including the FBI, the Department of Defense, and NATO. Enjoy our conversation with Kenny Shin. To kick things off for our conversation, we have a couple couple things we want to poke around with, but I think to set some context for folks listening in, you know, it's January when we're recording this, and there's a lot of sort of macro challenges within the context of tech. The elements I think are going to be interesting for us to get into is, you know, the different elements of realigning the organization towards business outcomes, talking about some of the dilemmas behind when to specialize the engineering org or not, and just some of the things that are top of your mind there. And so before we dive deeper into those topics, we'd love to set a little bit of context and learn more about about your journey and the journey at Fundrise. So we'd love for you to share, you know, how did Fundrise first come about and what was your journey like co-founding the company? I started working um, in 2002. So the year after September 11th happened, I uh, graduated into that part of our you know, cycle. And I'd spent time in D.C. doing jobs in D.C., which is government and also some other industries, real estate finance. And then 2008 happened, financial crisis 
with uh, Lehman Brothers. And I had a personal relationship with the CEO. We'd been playing soccer together, actually. Uh, we both graduated. This is very DC stuff, but we both graduated college around the same time. And then, you know, we were of that age where we played those alumni sports and met each other through that. And the financial crisis was a time where a lot of people reconsidered what they were doing in their careers and whether they were happy or not. Ben was in real estate and that was the industry most impacted by the financial crisis. So he took the time and opportunity to think about starting a company. And he knew I, I was in tech and I had done some entrepreneurial things and I, I'd taken some risks and been rewarded for it. And so, you know, he approached me with this this idea of, you know, using the internet to form capital and invested in real estate. A lot of things were happening at that time. Kickstarter was a, was a new thing. Some secondary transactions were occurring through a company called Second Market. Um, around 2010, he approached me with this idea, and I kind of knew that the things that I was doing with large enterprises, government clients, you know, I could always go back to those things. I knew that if I took a risk, um, what a lot of people perceived to be a risk. It's, it was a DC town. All my all my friends lived in the city, and a lot of them thought I was crazy. You know, I had a good job and a pretty good lifestyle, and was enjoying what I was doing. But the perceived risk was very different than I think what the actual risk was. So I decided I never did it before. I never did like a true startup, and I figured that you know we would spend six to twelve months uh, exploring it, and we would either succeed or fail very quickly. It was, it, you know. It was a, incredibly naive thought and turned out to be anything but that. But yeah, now 13 years later and, you know, we're still, you know, working on this the same original idea. But yeah, I guess in a nutshell, that's that's how we got going. I think the the risk assessment element is is super interesting. Having lived in DC and understanding sort of the risk tolerance, like the thing I always think about is, you know, with the actual District of Columbia being, I think it's, I, I've seen some statistics around 60 or 70% of folks that are there work within the government. And I think there's probably, my assumption is that there's a different tolerance of risk or an under an assessment of risk within those types of those types of roles. And so I think it's interesting, like for you, in the face of like, I guess that common culture, because I think we interview a lot of folks from, you know, different tech ecosystems outside of DC. And in some of those places, like the sense of risk or what the pattern is seems like different, like in San Francisco or, or like Seattle or someplace like that, there's almost like everybody's doing it. So it can't be that risky. And so when you were going through that risk assessment at the time, can you talk a little bit about your thought process there? It seemed like there was perceived risk, but the actual risk was low. What was that process like for you? I, I guess when I first graduated college, I, I worked for a big consulting firm and then worked a series of very large consulting projects with government clients or really large institutions. And I was really unhappy with it just because I saw the way the incentives were lined up, how, how much went into actually things other than really excellent software engineering, really excellent product, really excellent creativity delivery. It's far more into like winning contracts, managing client expectations, just things that, and, and, and it's through no fault of those organizations. That's that's how the incentives are aligned. And so I, I very early decided that if I was going to do that, because that, that still was generally the town I was living in and the industry of the town, um, that I could do it as an independent consultant. So, you know, I was pretty young. I was maybe 24 or 25 at that point with only a few years of experience. But I saw, I saw people doing this on the projects that are on. And so, you know, again, at that time, people thought I was 
pretty audacious to be leaving a path from a company that you hear their name, you see their commercials on TV. It is very safe and respected and, you know, colleagues, actually a pretty good company. But I did that and, you know, I just kind of had the opportunity in, at that point in my life to take a risk. And I worked my way through like the business organization, the accounting and like those elements of what you need to do when you set something like that up. And I was just thrilled by my decision, just being able to focus on the work and delivering value that way rather than the work plus all of the elements that come with navigating really large organizations. And then when Ben approached me with this idea, I, you know, I applied some of the same calculus that the things that were good, the things that weren't were a little bit, you know, frustrating about those projects I was on, even in this new structure that worked for me and how, you know, working at a product organization and not a client organization at a startup creating something from scratch, um, being responsible for everything sounded really appealing to me. It really sealed the deal to me that, you know, no matter what the condition of the economy was or whether we succeeded or failed, I knew just from my previous experience that the world of government contracting or a large, large IT project, it would always be there both now and I would say it's still true, like you know, <laughs> ten, a decade later, that that world will always be there. And I've given this story to many candidates when I've tried to convince them to join the organization, especially when we were a much smaller company and they felt like, you know, you had to get over a hurdle when you got people to join the company that they, they weren't taking this like irrevocable risk with their careers. Always telling them you're a smart, talented person. The reason why we're having this conversation is you passed all of our interview evaluations and we want you to join the company. And, you know, I know this part of you is, is fearing that, you know, what if Fundrise doesn't make it or, you know, the company isn't a fit for whatever reason. You, know, you can always go back to the other job that will always still be there. And I think it's a very authentic story because I, I walked that path myself. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, for software engineers, it's, I think if you're good at it, reasonably good at it, that you will always have a place in just about any company at this point. I can see how the power of making that statement for somebody who maybe is taking their, their first startup role, how that could be reassuring. And the job hunting element is such an existent, it can be such an emotionally existential challenge for folks, because there is this inherent sense of I am being judged or assessed and my worth is tied to somebody else's opinion. And that can be a really hard thing. But to reassure somebody that you are talented, you're smart, or otherwise, we wouldn't have this conversation. I think I can see it being a really great way to desensitize some of that perceived risk. Man, 13 years. So I wanted to dive in a little bit to some of the inflection points behind that because clearly Fundrise has evolved extensively from first starting it 13 years ago. Can you share with us a little bit about how the engineering org has evolved over that time and maybe some of the inflection points of the engineering org and how you all have had to evolve at some of those different phases? The beginning of the company is in the same as the way it's been written and said by so many people. Mm -hmm. It's you know, trying to find product market fit, you know, lean startup, minimum viable product, all those things that have been generally recognized as truths. And so, you know, our product had to evolve until we found something that was simple enough for investors and worked for us as an operating company and model that would scale. At the beginning, you know, I've described it to our engineering team often as all we were doing was providing interface and storing some data in the database and then updating it, reading it occasionally. And generally, that's what you need to launch something, get it in front of investors, and then start executing that business. 
once we you know found product market fit uh, with mass market product that worked with the regulations with the real estate you know structure that you know we could invest and generate what we think are pretty good returns for investors then we needed to start to scale the product that was when we had to start taking on some problems and challenges that couldn't be solved with you know, one really good night of focus <laughs> or one really, I should say one really good day of focus. Those days became weeks and weeks became months. But with a, with a really small engineering team, you know, you would break off people and, and have them like put out the fires or take care of something that really needed to be done. But, you know, longer focus, more complexity with scale. And then at some point, the opportunity really presented itself. And, you know, one of the key hurdles for execution was to have more people on the team who could capture the opportunity and then figuring out how to effectively make that much larger team work together in a way that's really productive, where everybody had their clear lines of ownership and focus and scope so that, you know, things could happen autonomously and get done with like high quality um, was definitely a different phase. Talk to me about that inflection point a little bit more. You said you mentioned this was kind of the big execution hurdle. Now, all of a sudden, there's this larger team, and the goal is to make them work together more productively. How did you identify that? Like, what was that like? And then how how did you make the switch in terms of how the team operated together to become more productive at that scale? A good way of kind of describing this was the pandemic in March of 2020, it, it gave our organization a time to pause. We all, everyone who's listening to this participated in this experience, the, the uncertainty of what the world looked like, you know, in late of March 2020. So we did what I, I'm guessing almost every organization did at that point. We stopped hiring and we, we cut back on marketing. We just prepared for the uncertainty as best we could. And then like a lot of organizations, by the end of May, the economy just started to recover and accelerate. And our organization like swung back. The pendulum went from, from a cold stop to start scaling again and at an accelerating pace. We had to transition the mindset of our organization back to hiring. In that, in that time period, um, there's a bit of a delay as we were like, you know, in May, things were still uncertain. You know, there was no vaccine at that point, and the world was still figuring out how, how the rest of this was going to play out. But our customers and their sentiment and the growth of our company started to really just restart. And so it was it was the combination of the like earlier than expected recovery and then still dealing with the uncertainty that you know, towards the end of the year, we ended up with a business that was growing very quickly, but we hadn't really leaned into hiring and hiring to match the growth that we were seeing in our business. So those two elements, you have a lot of people working really hard, but we're, you know, very stressed out. And we'd also had opportunities that we weren't ready to try to capture because the pandemic put a pause on a lot of our growth plans. And we were in a much, you know, for a period of time, we we're in a very defensive position where, you know, we were trying to ensure that we were going to be in the best place to weather like a really bad economic um, environment. It turned out to be the exact opposite. So that pause, it, it gave us an opportunity to like really examine our organization and see what we needed to improve upon. And so, you know, it, it, it was clear that when we were like hiring at that point, we were either hiring to solve problems that, you know, were apparent as we were out of the weeds and thinking about how our organization needed to evolve with this rapidly growing business or uh, new opportunities that we wanted to capture. And so roughly that's, that's how we approached it. 
I can definitely see the challenge of that inflection point. I mean, that was a very, very difficult moment for for a lot of folks. One inflection point in particular that I think is interesting for a lot of folks who are in a an earlier stage company, the, the typical pattern is, you know, you have a few folks that are working on like pretty broad outcomes, and it could be a little bit more of a um, level of structure. And as the company grows, there's this dilemma of, you know, when do we specialize versus how do we stay more broad and more high level? And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about, is there a good example of, of that specialization dilemma that you all faced? And, and how did you work through that decision making process? The earliest phase of that we were about nine engineers, maybe 10. And there, there's been this kind of like a natural ratio or a magic number for our company over the years. And it's kind of, it's like maybe the Moore's Law Fundrise or something like that. We've generally needed to have about a third of our staff be engineering, um, no matter what size we were, even when we were really, really small. And it still holds to the day. And, and you know, maybe we'll figure out why at some point. But um Generally, we were about nine or 10 people, pretty small team, I think. And we had launched our mass market pro- product and had some product market fit. But up until that point, you know, we just onboarded everybody to the same, to one engineering team. Everybody reported to me. And it was very like Kanban, maybe. As soon as you finished a piece of work, you just picked up the next thing that was the highest priority. And eventually, everybody touched every piece of the business, every piece of the product. So... You know, we made it to about 10 on the engineering team working like that. But we'd hit a wall as a company. Maybe a wall is a little bit harsh of a term, but we, we hit a plateau. Maybe that's better. <laughs> <laughs> we, hit, we hit a plateau of the company in terms of our growth, top line metrics. And we really needed to focus on more sophistication with our acquisition program. So it, it was converting people to become customers. And I had friends who I knew through like either networks or previous positions um, who worked in e-commerce and they were able to like kind of paint a picture on how efficient conversion marketing needs to be and how how efficient internet ad advertising markets are. And especially, I bet at that time, 2017, 2018, the amount of like private equity venture capital being invested in in growth companies probably made those internet ad markets inefficient where people were willing to spend the money or companies were willing to spend the money to acquire customers at un- non-economically sustainable terms. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen like the movie passes and like, <laughs> and, you know, locally in DC, it was living social kind of scale in non-economic ways. And we knew that we didn't want to be one of those companies that would just like build a business on economics that couldn't couldn't make sense. So what we ended up doing was we took one of our really strong engineers and paired them with somebody that we had brought on to run our growth marketing program. And the two of them went deep instead of really basic metrics and instrumentation on our conversion marketing programs. It was like knowing to the penny exactly how much it was costing us to get a visit, a customer, how their like lifetime value was Um, tracking, you know, over time. And, you know, it goes beyond that, you know, the top of funnel, all the way down to the bottom of the funnel, mid funnel, and just being able to be as deductive as possible, accurate as possible in order to, you know, you have a budget, $1 million, $10 million, $100 million, and, you know, saying spend this as efficiently as you can to acquire as many high value customers as you can. The only way to do that is to have a really, really deep, sophisticated, tight partnership between 
you know, your software team that builds the funnel and, you know, provides the data and measures everything. And then your conversion marketing team that deploys the dollars on a daily basis. And you were able to do that with just one to two people. Like to me, that that is like an extraordinarily efficient use of team to build out sort of that specialty around growth engineering and growth marketing. Just one to two people jumping into that. Initially, yes. I think a lot of things start that way, though. When you're really doing something from a kind of limited position and you're ramping up, the initial phase of that, the faster you can make decisions, the more easily you can coordinate with each other. There's there's just a lot of benefits to, to starting with a small group and then expanding out from there. And of course, of course, we had to add people to that effort, you know, fairly quickly within, within months. Yeah. Also personal experience too. Like when you first started, you know, building our first version of the website, it was myself and, and a designer and two people just working day in, day out really closely who, who work well with each other. There is something very fast about how quickly you can move and, and make decisions when that group is the absolute minimum size of people. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. So when you're looking at identifying new opportunities to specialize or build out a different engineering function, do you have a, a framework or a way that you approach that process of identifying that new opportunity to launch maybe that experimental initiative with one or two people? What's your approach there for identifying some of those new opportunities around specialization? So you you brought framework. There's a set of decisions when you're capturing new opportunities where it is very speculative and no amount of ana- quantitative analysis will actually say, like, do that thing where you have never done it before. It's, a, it's an entirely new area. You can get some signals from your customers or, like, insights from your team through interactions. But there's an element of, like, intuition and, and like, conviction around ideas. But for, like, the other bucket, it, it's something I've repeated to, you know, a number of people on our team. There, there have definitely been phases in our company where we were growing rapidly, both from a revenue perspective, and then secondarily as a result of that, hiring a lot of people and adding people to our team. And I, I would tell people, some of, some of our managers, you know, they would tell me how underwater they always felt, how stressed out they were, how they felt like it was a relentless pace where they would finish one big deliverable or hit a deadline or a date on the calendar. The next thing would come up so quickly that it was just hard. It was a hard grind for them. And, you know, it comes down to if you're at a position where I don't want to say blank check, but you're given a lot of breath and latitude as a team to hire aggressively and you're really limited by, you know, candidate market versus budgets and growth projections and other things like that. Um, it's definitely not today, but, you know, we were we were in that, you know, a few years mm-hmm. um, consistently. If you have those those facts around you that, you know, you can hire within reason, really aggressively, but your team is experiencing that grind. Generally, something is probably very wrong with how you're organized around the work. Once we, 
you know, have a situation like that, then one thing I found really helpful is just to go through an exercise of what do we do well, what don't we do well, and then kind of stopping there. If you if you really focus on getting out of the weeds and thinking about what what's deficient, what's always a struggle, you get through it, but you look back and you you're like, wow, that was really hard and unpleasant. And then, you know, you really spend your time thinking about those things with some you know, perspective and distance, hopefully. Oftentimes the solutions do offer themselves up. Oftentimes the solutions are, you know, sometimes they're to hire or, or sometimes they're just to shift resources and reorganize in different ways, you know, who's responsible for what. And that that framework um, has really kind of provided a way to approach that general problem of we have a lot of growth. Um, we can hire, but for some reason, even though we've hired a bunch, things are still like a struggle and I think more of a struggle than they should be. I love the simplicity and I think queuing into the the area of we're struggling more than we should be and then just simply walking through the what do we do well, what don't we do well, and then the answers reveal themselves. I think we unconsciously went through a similar experience where we were producing our conference and the experience of it was really tough. Like it was one of those grinds where we, you know, got through it. And then we were like, man, it doesn't have to be, you know, producing something like that and like accomplishing a big project like that doesn't have to be like that. And so uh, having this framework, I think, will help us deconstruct that a little bit better and, and shift some of those resources. I think that's great. You know, for a lot of folks listening in, you know, they may be are operating in different industries, different product spaces. And in the world, so in the fintech world, there are some unique challenges and constraints of operating in that environment. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about just what it's like operating in a area where tech products could be more regulated or in a more constrained environment. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges or the differences in, in sort of operating in that space? Yeah. We hired our chief marketing officer. He was at Uber. The first things that he kind of gave us feedback on, fresh eyes, fresh perspective, is that onboarding to our company is really hard compared to onboarding at Uber. And it had to do with the fact that almost 100% of the people at that point who were joining Uber or joining him at Uber had used the product um, and could describe it in a few sentences, even had opinions that they came with on, you know, what they liked, what they didn't like, and ideas. At that point in our history, generally the people joining our company had never used our product. We pay a recruiter, they would introduce us to somebody. And during that candidacy process, we'd have to explain product. And that that's like the beginning of it. And I, I was thinking about this. I'm sure with any company, this is always true that, you know, there's always an, an information asymmetry between what a customer experiences and what the company has to do and execute to be able to provide that experience, whether it's a product or an experience, depending on what's being consumed. But I think for our company, the the regulatory environment, the legal environment, it's something that you don't, you would never even think about as a consumer, unless you're a, a securities attorney or a regulator. The entire industry generally has to try to abstract all of that complexity and regulation away from the end user. And the companies that do that the best are probably, you know, that's one of their main value propositions. So unless you're coming to our company as a securities attorney, I think all of that has to be learned once you're here. Those constraints that everyone has to, to learn and understand, they're, they're layered into our execution and everything that we do. Having an organization that's willing to take on that complexity and have an expectation that in order to, to function the, 
as efficiently as possible that generally you have to you have to say that from the CEO on CEO down to you know the person who just joined having the expectation that you learn the complexity you internalize it and you know it doesn't happen overnight but at least have the expectation that people are expected to learn the complexity. I think it's key to our operations because the opposite of it is you leave that complexity to a few subject matter experts in the organization and they become the bottleneck for everything. Every piece of software you build, every communication that you have, every idea that you have. Is this possible? Oh, let's run it by, you know, the person who knows registered investment advisors, the person who knows, you know, 40 act funds, the person who knows publicly traded partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's like a unique part of our of our ethos. I think it comes through in the in the products that we we end up building. And you're mentioning like, you know, a common user trying to understand like the whole complexities like within commercial or residential real estate. That to me is absolute magic. All of the the hidden work that goes behind that, I can't even begin to imagine what goes on behind the scenes there. I'd love to go into, you know, how does the regulatory environment and some of those constraints impact the design or the development process for the technology products with your engineering team? When it comes to thinking about product development and design and things like that, um, what's the impact there and what do those conversations look like? Some things are like ongoing that are like harder to talk about because in a lot of areas and a lot of times we're breaking new ground when it comes to regulations because we're early enough in the like area that we operate that not everything has been decided. Not everything has precedent that you can just reference and look up, find the best practice and just like execute along those lines. It's one of the things that is one of the expertises that we've developed in like the organizational DNA that we've been working together for a while. At least the core team has. Like our software team can sit down with our general counsel or you know, somebody on our legal team and they can say, you know, we're, we're trying to meet this requirement for this kind of fund. And up until this point, it was handled via like faxes and phone calls and wet signatures. Typical transaction times were weeks, not days or instant. So how do we translate this paper-driven, multi-week, in-person process to an iOS app that meets the spirit of the regulations? And we, you know, with an eye of when we're sitting down in the future, you know, in a conversation, in a call with one of our regulators, you know, we'll be able to explain decisions that we made and, and feel really, really good about our, our implementations. So coming up with elegant solutions to meeting those kinds of requirements is a really complex interplay between regulators, attorneys, product, engineering, design, uh, and, and getting good at it requires the ability to understand you know, be empathetic and understand, you know, there's a gap between all of those functions and disciplines and, and being able to, to bridge that gap. It's something that we've developed over the years. And it's, it's kind of like a great part of our company. That's the answer of like, how do we provide value in a way that's it's really not that easy to replicate? A couple, a couple things that stand out to me about this, like, so in the context of a highly regulated space, we've had a couple of folks come onto the show and talk about, you know, the product trio of design, product and engineering. And as you mentioned, you know, some of the gaps in those functions and how to bridge those gaps. And I imagine when you introduce turning the trio into a quad, or even, you know, a, a Pentagon, I guess, when you introduce the regulators and legal all within like helping design that product increases the complexity increases the level of empathy and seeking to understand needed there. But I really appreciate what you shared 
about having the expectation be in the company that you have to understand some of the complexities that drive this whole process. And then the other part is then including folks in as a design partner. And so I'm like imagining like legal is less of, you know, the general counsel, but also more of like a key design partner in terms of the end product. Is that the right understanding there? Completely. I would like add to that and say, like, don't be afraid of the primary source. Meaning if there's some regulation that we're trying to understand like, has anybody taken the time to actually read it? Like the, the actual rule that's published by whether it's the SEC or the IRS or FINRA or if we're dealing with a state agency, don't be afraid of the primary source. And it's pretty interesting when you read some of our legal documents, some of our agreements, some of our SEC filings, that a lot of the, the language in there, in a way, I mean, this is kind of like of the moment, but it is in a, in a legal way, kind of a programming of, it eventually does get translated almost directly. You know, sometimes legal agreements say, if this thing happens, then the following other thing will apply. And that kind of legal agreement, it's very similar to programming a system because you have to consider edge cases, you have to consider causalities. And then it's not a simple matter to adjust it down the road because people have qualified offerings, people have, have executed and countersigned legal agreements. So you really have to be very thoughtful on the front end when you're essentially starting to use the very beginning of parts of our systems. They really genuinely do get encoded in our legal documents and filings. Wow. I think just to, to recap uh, a few things we've talked about, setting the expectation around understanding the entire complexity uh, of the issue, be the bridge between uh, legal and regulators and product engineering design, and understand the primary source. I think those are incredible insights in terms of operating in that highly, a highly regulated environment. Kenny, really quickly, I just want to check in. I know we're coming up on time. I was hoping to ask maybe one more question about the Innovation Fund. Sure. Yeah, the, the Innovation Fund, we announced it to our investors in the latter part of the year last year. Over the last decade or so, we've built a team and a lot of technology around raising capital into funds and managing those funds and executing, acquiring real estate assets and executing that business. You know, that's opened up a lot of opportunities for us. Millions of users are now on our platform and we've developed you know, regulatory expertise, but an operating expertise as well in managing capital at scale and you know, we have a certain kind of investor. They're using the web, Android, iOS apps to invest with us. So they definitely skew younger. They're definitely skewed towards an enthusiasm of using technology to invest their capital. It was a question of not if, but when we would move beyond the real estate assets to another asset for our investors. And, you know, we had to gather some data points and do some thinking, but we landed that the quality asset, the, re the historical returns that we would introduce venture investing assets of growth stage companies to our investor base. And how it has relevancy to the engineering team is we're obviously in many ways not a traditional venture capital or growth capital fund or growth capital organization operating business with more than 100 software engineers. But beyond that, you know, we have teams of people that our data analysts, people steeped in real estate technology. At last count, we were customers of more than 300 SaaS applications. So we launched this in the second half of the year. And I would say it's, I mean, depending on who you ask, 
course. But, you know, for me personally, it, it's exceeded um, my expectations in terms of how much adoptions we've we've had amongst our invest- existing investor base and how many of them, in addition to new new people drawn to our platform by this asset class, have taken to it and kind of joined us in investing in a new fund focusing on growth stage tech companies. I'm super interested to hear the the ways that the fund continues to evolve. The insight that I, I draw from as you're sharing about how it arrived in the first place, I think is super interesting for any folks that are in sort of like that strategic engineering leader role. And just from what you shared, you know, what are the capabilities or expertise have you developed? And then are there or what are the new ways you might be able to apply those, whether that looks like new products, new services, etc. I think that's that's a really interesting discussion to come up because of how specialized the engineering function can be and how developing strengths or capabilities in that area can help up a lot of different things. And it's, so it's really cool to see this capability of being able to abstract away highly regulated areas to then be able to like have a lot of capabilities around investment decisions and things like that and how those intersect and how that manifests in the innovation fund. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, when it comes to evaluating a company and its product from a uh, technology perspective, nothing beats living and working and being power users of a product day in, day out for years as a way of evaluating not just a product, but an entire organization. I mean, just like really easy examples, AWS thing that everybody uses. As we've scaled and become larger users, we interact with the support team there and just seeing the quality of how they interact with our engineers and how it's not through proxies, it's not through salespeople who say, you know, I can't answer that question. I need to get an engineer on the phone. You know, <laughs> it's 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 that you get to talk to subject matter experts who are familiar with your problem and can get you authoritative answers. They're unambiguous authoritative answers that, you know, you see those qualities and you can kind of see those about companies that were evaluating their product. And nothing is more authentic than telling one of our engineers that, hey, let's look into this new product. Um, we're looking to invest in it, but it also is a potential solution for something that is an organizational deficiency or something that we're looking to bring on as a new capability. So the Innovation Fund for the engineering teams had a lot of really great externalities for us. It's kind of provided another reason for us to explore new companies, new tools, and we've definitely started using some new SaaS applications and technologies as a result of like some of these evaluations. Super, super happy with our experience so far. It does seem like a really interesting sort of unexpected externality where the engineering team is able to experiment with new things, so then you, therefore the engineering work is evolving in in really cool advanced ways, but also their experience as well. I think that's a cool way to introduce new ideas, capabilities, and technologies in a, in a really meaningful way. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions, Kenny? Sure. Cool. What are you reading or listening to right now? Crying in H-Mart. Uh, I heard Michelle Zahner, the author on a podcast. I'm Korean-American, and so is she, and sounded, you know, her story had a lot of things that resonated with me. So my sister also recommended the book to me. So it's been really great. Our team member who helps us out with copywriting runs a bookstagram, and she mentioned that one, and she has an automatic voting power for what book I read next. And so I definitely need to add Crying in H-Mart to my list. That sounds awesome. Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? I'm sure I'm not alone in this one, but we made the leap from CloudWatch to Datadog a few years ago, and it succeeded any expectation I had. Um, and we had really great references on how great the tool was, but the leap from CloudWatch to Datadog was like unexpectedly great. 
the richness of the out of the box functionality and how how much you get and then also how much the product has evolved in the years that we've been using it. I guess I can't recommend it enough. Love it. Last question to wrap us all up. Is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? Resonating is just a conversation I just had at lunch with one of my uh, colleagues in our finance organization. And it's that, you know, the second best time to plant a tree is now, meaning we we made a change, an organizational change in how we manage our funds. And it is going great. We're seeing other benefits that we hadn't initially anticipated. And, you know, it's the hindsight of, you know, why didn't we do this sooner? But once you get over that initial like recognition, then you, know, you can kind of say that, well, the second second best time to plant a tree is now. I love it. Kenny, thank you for an incredible conversation, you know, helping deconstruct what it's like to operate in a highly regulated environment and some tips and insights to help folks approach that and for helping us understand some of the strategic pivots and evolutions of an organization and what that might look like and how to do that well. So thank you for the time and for some incredible stories. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.